Hello, hello, hello. This is Monica, and this is Remembering the Misremembered. And um, I'm about to conclude my feud series, my musical feuds with uh, Joe Tex and his feud with James Brown. And um, Joe Tex is somebody that's really not as remembered as he should be. So I'm going to close this portion out by talking about him and remembering him a bit. He, uh, he had recorded about 30 songs between 1955 and 1964, and uh, these were not considered successes, but he did eventually score four, four million-selling records between 1965 and 1977 uh, with Hold What You Got, 1965, Skinny Legs and All, 1967, I Gotcha, 1972, and Ain't Gonna Bump No More with No Big Fat Woman, 1977. So Joe Tex was a Southern soul man. Some call him the first rapper. He specialized in answer records and records that influenced dance crazes, novelty records. Now, the first time that I clearly remember even hearing of Joe Tex was in the Jacksons movie, in uh, the scene where Joe Jackson was rehearsing the boys, and one of them messed up, and Joe said, that is not how Joe Tex does it. Show him Michael, and Michael demonstrates perfectly how Joe Tex does it. But Joe Tex indulged in a feud with Godfather of Soul, James Brown, which is uh, something that we'll discuss here. But uh, first, we need to get into who Joe Tex is because in this day and age, he isn't nearly as well-known as James Brown, who had a much longer life and career. But um, Joe had noteworthy accomplishments that need to be considered. He's not just some dude who feuded with James Brown. Joseph Arrington Jr. was born on August 8, 1935, in Rogers, Texas, to Joseph... Arrington Sr. and Cherie Sue Arrington. Joe's parents split up when he was young. Cherie Sue relocated to Baytown, leaving Joe and his sister Mary Sue in the care of their grandmother. It's not clear to me if Cherie Sue took charge of her children again after that, but she was still involved in their lives and worked as a live-in domestic. Now, Joe developed his musical abilities in the church choir and in his school choir. He also played baritone saxophone in his high school band. Joe took on various jobs over the years in order to help his family out. He performed song and dance routines to supplement his income as a shoeshine boy. He also had a paper route. At one point, he worked at a slaughterhouse during the day, and his evenings were spent DJing as Jiving Joe on KRELAM. This radio station played the music of doo-wop groups, Johnny Ace, Lloyd Price, and even music by country singer Hank Williams and singers of that ilk. Joe's high school music teacher, Maddie Bell Durkee, mentored him, exposed him to secular music, and helped to put him on the path to a professional career by entering him in talent shows in Houston, the closest major city to him. Now, Joe's mother, was adamant that he complete high school before diving headlong into the music business, and he apparently took her advice. Now, Joe participated in a talent show in Houston where he took first prize. 
His competitors included Hubert Laws and Johnny Nash, who were future recording artists. He performed a musical comedy skit called It's in the Book. Joe would be known for his great ability to incorporate humor into his performances, and he was also a great mimic. But the prize included $300 and a week-long stay at Harlem's Hotel Teresa. During this time, Joe decided to pursue his music career right there in New York. He settled into a Hempstead, Long Island flop house and took work as a grave digger at a Jewish cemetery. He briefly sang with a street corner doo-wop group called the Sunbeams, a group that was formed in 1950 by John Combo. In March 1955, they recorded a song for the Herald label. Joe was working at a clothing store at this time and was obviously not interested in being in a group. Joe performed at the Apollo Theater on Amateur Night, singing Arthur Prysock's Woke Up This Morning. He won the amateur contest four weeks in a row, which garnered him $25 per win. This led to a four-week professional booking at the Apollo. Joe began working at local clubs after completing his Apollo engagement. Arthur Prysock himself caught Joe Tex's act at a club on Freeport, Long Island. This led to Joe Tex being introduced to Henry Glover, King Records' A&R man. Between 1955 and 1957, Joe recorded five songs for King, the first of which was a ballad called Come In This House. These songs were not successful. In no time, though, Joe Tex was going toe-to-toe with the likes of James Brown and Little Willie John. He performed on bills with them as well as performing on bills with Little Richard. Little Richard is one of many people who say that James Brown took Joe Tex's act, the cape, the delirium, the mic stand kick and recovery, and the split, and made it his own. And James Brown did these dance moves for decades. But this is supposedly what set off the intense rivalry between the two. Joe Tex also claimed to have written Fever, the song popularized by Little Willie John before Peggy Lee or anyone else sang it. He said he sold the rights to the song in order to pay his rent. The song's credited writers, Otis Blackwell and Joe Cooley, denied such claims. But nobody disputes that Joe Tex wrote the answer record to Fever, called Pneumonia. And I'm not kidding, he really put out a song called Pneumonia. In 1958, Joe was signed to Ace Records, where he continued to struggle. 1960 saw him signed to Detroit's Anna Records. Joe had begun to incorporate a style where he would rap or preach over the music. Remember that some people refer to him as music's first rapper, and this has also been said about James Brown. But he recorded a cover version of the Etta James song, All I Could Do Was Cry, which was a minor hit for him. In 1961, Joe Tex recorded a song that he had composed called Baby You're Right, and James Brown covered the song shortly thereafter, but he changed the lyrics and the musical arrangement enough that he received songwriting credit. Joe Tex and James Brown are credited as the song's co-writer. James Brown was always a savvy businessman. The song was a hit for James Brown, though both men benefited from its success. It made it to number two on the R&B chart. Following this success, James Brown has started working with a singer named B. Ford. B. Ford was either the ex-wife or ex-girlfriend of Joe Tex, depending on who's telling the story. But Joe and B. had split up in 1959, so it's not true that James stole B. from Joe. 
1960, Joe and B recorded a song called You've Got the Power. Now, Joe Tex received a letter from James Brown where James told Joe he was through with B and that Joe could have her back. In 1962, Joe released a diss track called You Keep Her. Everything blew up in 1963 in Macon, Georgia at a club called Club 15. Joe and James were on the same bill, along with Otis Redding with Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers. Joe Tex opened the show. He came out in a tattered cape and he started rolling on the floor screaming, please, somebody help me get out of this cape. James Brown was livid about being mocked and still feeling a way about you keep her. Ready to settle this once and for all, the Godfather of Soul left the club and returned a few minutes later with shotguns. Onlookers could only run for cover as James Brown wordlessly shot up the place. Joe Tex had already left the club before the shooting started, but I'll tell you who was still there. Otis Redding, Johnny Jenkins, and the Pine Toppers, all hidden behind a nearby piano as, they, as the bullets flew. They tried to scrunch behind it. Some accounts say six or seven people got shot. Others say that no people were shot, but some pigs from a nearby pig farm may have been injured or killed. Witnesses were reportedly given $100 apiece to keep quiet about the exact details of what occurred. James Brown and his crew then left. Over the years, though, Joe Tex still taunted James Brown, even after all of that. In interviews, Joe took umbrage to James Brown being called Soul Brother Number One, a title that he thought rightfully belonged to Little Willie John. Joe accused James of stopping DJs from playing Joe's song, Skinny Legs and All, preventing it from eclipsing James Brown's current hit. While touring the country in 1968, Joe Tex traveled in a bus emblazoned with the words, the new Soul Brother Number One, but he eventually had it painted over. When Joe challenged James to a contest to determine who the real soul brother was, James turned down the offer saying that he would not fight another black man and that Joe needed help. It's interesting that he wouldn't fight another black man, but he would possibly shoot one. Anyway, although Joe and James eventually moved on from the feud, JB couldn't resist one last jab at Joe Tex. When he performed the song Funky Side of Town with Bobby Bird and Hank Ballard, on the Get on the Good Foot album. Ballard mentioned Joe Tex as one of the greats of soul music to which James Brown responded, who? Now in 1964, Joe signed with Dow Records and that's where he had his greatest success. Joe Tex had traveled to Muscle Shoals, Alabama in November 1964 where he recorded how, hold what you've got. That was at the Fame Studios. Joe had had the 30 flops by this time and didn't have any reason to expect success with this song, although he didn't want it to be released. It was released by Buddy Killen in early 1965, and Buddy Killen is Joe's longtime producer. It had sold 200,000 copies by the time Joe was aware of its release. The ballad made it all the way to number five on the Hot 100 chart. And this was also the first time that Joe Tex had a number one song on the R&B charts. Hold What You Got stayed on the charts for 11 weeks. By 1966, it had sold more than a million records. 1965 was Joe's banner year. He had six top 40 hits that year, including two number one hits, I Want to Do Everything For You and A Sweet Woman Like You. After more than a decade, he was experiencing consistent success. 
He was even seriously giving James Brown a run for his money, charting higher than his nemesis at this time. In 1966, he had five more top 40 entries, including an answer to Wilson Pickett's 6345789 Soulsville, USA, called SYSLJFM, also known as the Letter Song. 1966 is also the year that Joe Tex converted to Islam, adopting the name Yusuf Haziz. He was also known as Minister Joseph X. Arrington. Joe continued churning out songs, some of them moderate successes. In 1972, he retired from show business and became a spiritual lecturer and minister. But following the 1975 death of Elijah Muhammad, he re-entered show business. Under Your Powerful Love reached the top 40. His last hit was in 1977 with Ain't Gonna Bump No More With No Big Fat Woman. Joe Tex's last public performances took place in 1981 as a member of the revised version of the Soul Clan. Now, the Soul Clan was a group uh, established of, of established soul artists who came together in the 1960s to record music and hopefully help the black community economically. They wanted to build and develop. And the original members of the Soul Clan were Solomon Burke, Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, Don Covey, and Joe Tex. Pickett and Redding left the group to be replaced by Benny King and Otis Redding's protege, Arthur Conley. They recorded an album called The Soul Clan and released a single called Soul Meeting, which reached number 34 on the Soul Singles chart. But the project wasn't successful because they did not have backing or support from Atlantic Records who did not want to see the black community receive this type of help. The last four years of Joe Texas' life were sad. He retired to his Texas ranch in Navasota, Texas. He had been a sober man up till then, but fell into drug and alcohol abuse. Someone close to him said it was as if he was making up for lost time. This, of course, led to poor health. On August 8, 1982, his 47th birthday, Joe Tex was found at the bottom of his swimming pool. He was rushed to the hospital, revived, and sent home only to die five days later of a heart attack. He was in severe debt to the government. He owed money to numerous women and other entities. He is said to have left behind a wife, a daughter, and four sons, but some other reports say he had eight children. As Joe Tex's body lay in his coffin, the mortician refused to bury him until somebody coughed up $5,000. His longtime producer, Buddy Killen, coughed up the money. Joe Tex has been nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame six times, but has not yet been inducted. Hopefully he will be inducted in the not-too-distant future. But um, Joe Tex summed up his life. He said, it's been nice here, man. A lot of ups and downs the way life is, but I've enjoyed this life. I was glad that I was able to come up out of creation and look all around and see a little bit. Grass and trees and cars, fish and steaks, potatoes, and I thank God for that. I'm thank thankful that he let me get up and walk around and take a look around here, because this is nice. So that is the way that Joe Tex summed up his life. And we remember Joe Tex on Remembering the Misremembered. I'm Monica. 
and I will see you soon. Hello, hello, hello. This is Monica, and uh, this is Remembering the Misremembered. And um, I have a interesting person to talk about today. Um, he has been referred to as the heartbeat of the Motown sound. And Marvin Gaye, Mr. Gaye himself called him the secret weapon of Motown. He's also been called the man with the magic fingers. One admirer declared that he was the electric bass player and that he didn't receive his just during his lifetime. James Jamerson, a.k.a. Igor, was the central component of the greatest hit machine in the history of popular music. Over about a 14-year period, he and his fellow Detroit musicians, known as the Funk Brothers, played on more hits than the Beach Boys, the Rolling Stones, Elvis, and the Beatles combined, even as people try to claim that Paul McCartney is the bassist who played on the most hits. I don't see how that's possible, but anyway, Paul McCartney is a bass player who has spoken of Jamerson as an influence. So have Peter Cetera, Stanley Clark, Bootsy Collins, Robert Cool Bell, Bob Babbitt, who is a fellow funk brother, Sting, Marcus Miller, John Paul Jones, and many, many others. Now, for most of his life, James Jamerson was under the impression that he had been born on January 29, 1938. In the late 1970s, a few years before his death, James saw his birth certificate and realized that he was born two years earlier on January 29, 1936. His place of birth was Odesto Island, South Carolina, and his parents were James and Elizabeth, and he had a brother named Richard. His father worked in the shipyards, and his mother was a domestic. James was just a small boy when his parents split up, and it seems that his aunt and grandmother took charge of him, and his musical education began. James would go to the home of a cousin every day, and by the age of 10, he was playing piano in church and at other gatherings. He also learned to play trombone. But um, before he turned 10, James Jamerson was involved in a serious bicycle accident where both of his feet were crushed and it was at first feared that James might lose those feet. But fortunately, he was able to have successful reconstructive surgery. He spent a year in a wheelchair, left with a small limp that never left and finding it necessary to wear special shoes James would be good-naturedly teased by his fellow Motown musicians. James took the ribbon in stride, but the permanent damage to his feet made him self-conscious. It was another thing that made him stand out. And he struggled to string his words together, sometimes using the incorrect form or tense. Example, he told his future wife, Annie, I want to marry you. Now, he could have been trying to be funny. Sometimes, I know sometimes I will say things incorrectly on purpose, you know, just trying to be funny or whatever, but... Some people are claiming that this was like a, an impediment or something, but I don't know. Anyway, James stood out in another way uh, as far as his physical appearance. His toast-colored complexion and light, almost blue eyes also made him feel different from his darker friends, relatives, and associates. Of course, in later years when he moved to Detroit, he would find his tribe and be surrounded by people of many different skin tones. But it's perhaps because of all of this that James was considered to be a loner. James's mother, Elizabeth, had moved to Detroit to find work, and she eventually sent for the teenage James in 1954. 
James had flirted with the bass as a young kid. He told a story about taking a stick and stretching a long rubber band across it and playing it for an audience of ants. He and his friends used to play inside the vacant home of some vacationing neighbors where there was a piano and an upright bass. It was in high school that James Jamerson got serious about playing the bass. According to the book Standing in the Shadows of Motown, James's high school friend, a drummer named Clifford Mack, said that he and James were walking to the music room one day. When they got there, they saw a bunch of instruments lined up. They tried to figure out what they wanted to play. James saw an upright bass. He went to it and started to play around with it and predicted, I'll be playing this in six months. The music teacher at Northeastern High School, where James was a student, was named Dr. Helstein, and he had encouraged James to take up the upright bass because he had large hands. James never seemed to struggle with the instrument once he decided to play it. James was offered a scholarship to Wayne State University but turned it down, opting instead to dive directly into the Detroit club scene as a jazz and blues musician. It was in 1959 that James Jamerson started playing for the brand new Hitsville, USA. Between 1963 and 1968 alone, James and the Funk Brothers played on 60 top 15 singles, 56 number one R&B hits, and 23 number one hits on the pop charts for Motown Records. He didn't just play. He completely revolutionized the way that bass is played. Bass playing once consisted of root notes, fits, and simple repetitive patterns. Jamerson, however, used chromatic runs, syncopation, ghost notes and inversions, and the use of open strings. Mostly he played using one finger known as the hook, like he would with the upright bass. His melodic lines locked to the drum groove. It's important to note that at the time that Jamerson went from upright to electric bass, the electric bass was relatively new. The style of it had not yet been established, so his style greatly influenced popular music. James said that the songwriters and producers would hand him the chord sheet, and he would take it and do what he felt with it. He built his bass lines around the melody line from the lyrics. He said, too, that his playing was inspired by the spiritual feeling of the East. Standing in the shadows of love to his ears had an Arabic feel. He studied African, Cuban, and Indian scales and brought this knowledge with him to Motown. Among other things, Jamerson was noted for his timing, which was often two beats ahead of the refrain. He was literally ahead of everyone and everything else. Jack Ashford said, you couldn't even touch his timing because he could hear another time in his head and be playing cut time against what you play and it would fit. Funk King Rick James said that James was so fluent on bass that he knew notes in between notes. James and the Funk Brothers made decent money working at Motown. James was esteemed slightly higher than the others because he was considered more of a master of his instrument than the other musicians were of theirs, even though they too were the best in town. Barry Gordy was paying James $2.50 a week during Motown's glory years. The Funk Brothers also played at various jazz clubs in Detroit when they weren't working in the studio. Sometimes it was a struggle to get paid. The Funk Brothers, according to keyboardist Joe Hunter, even had to pull guns on the club owner to ensure that they got paid, with James putting his gun on the table and declaring, I got a family. James had been married to his wife, the former Annie Wells, since high school, and they went on to have four kids together. James, Joe, Derek, and Doreen, known as Penny. James Jr., or is it the third, became a professional bassist as well. 
James and his family moved into a three-bedroom home on the west side of Detroit, which was a great area back then. Some of James Jamison's most iconic bass lines are as follows, and he had many, many other great moments, but these are some of the most emblematic. Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, where the rhythmic variations between sections is emphasized. Ain't nothing like the real thing, it's just as special, though. Bernadette by the Four Tops is considered by many music historians and many bass historians as Jamerson's finest performance, or at least his most in-your-ear performance, as opposed to in-your-face. It's very easy to find this particular bass line in isolation on YouTube, MusicRadar.com, and possibly some other places. What's going on by Marvin Gaye? Jamerson's bass in the introduction really sets the tone for this classic piece of social commentary set to music. This album marks the first time that James Jamerson's work is actually credited in the album's liner notes. It's been said that Marvin Gaye was adamant that James Jamerson, and not a substitute, play on the album's title track. He had been playing in a bar and was still there, drunk, when they located him to record his part. If this story is to be believed, we are listening to Jamerson playing, laying flat on his back and deep in his cups. For Once in My Life by Stevie Wonder. Jamerson pulls out his open strings bag, and Stevie pulls out his harmonica. When everybody started calling Stevie a genius, Jamerson lovingly told Stevie, you ain't shit. Standing in the Shadows of Love by the Four Tops, where Jamerson incorporates the rake technique, a movement of the right hand where he rakes his fingers across the strings, backward or forward as needed. I love the interplay between the bass, the percussion, and Levi Stubbs' lead vocal. In isolation, it sounds like hot lava pouring from a volcano. The same old song, also by the Four Tops. A great bass line for those just learning to play the Jamerson way. My Girl by the Temptations. Jamerson beautif beautifully opens this song with the sound of a beating heart. It's iconic in every way. A beautiful collaboration where the songwriters, singers, and musicians were all at the very top of their game. One of the most famous bass lines. The most famous everything of all time. Recognized all over the world among people of all races and age groups. And, of course, there are many, many more, but those are some of my favorites. In 1973, James Jamerson made the move to Los Angeles. He joined up with Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church and was on the church's musical staff. The glory days of Detroit were over, and James struggled to adjust to L.A.'s music scene. He did not have that tight circle of support that he'd enjoyed in Detroit, nor did he adjust well to the new trends in music. He was stubborn, proud, and just a little bit spoiled. He resisted change. As the years went on, his dependency on alcohol became more intense. With increased dependency on a substance comes an increase in unreliability, and it impacts a person's ability to function. People started to forget a little bit, as people do, but it wasn't over for James, and he continued to contribute to hit recordings such as The Silver's Boogie Fever, Higher and Higher by Jackie Wilson, and You Don't Have to Be a Star to Be in My Show by Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr., James had grown accustomed to being a sought-after musician in his day, but he had to humble himself and get his daughter to help him put together a resume detailing who he had worked with and what hit songs he contributed to. Bitterly, he just said, I've done a whole lot of shit. The gigs didn't necessarily go well because James could be critical of other musicians, particularly bass players. A producer tried getting him to update his playing style by using brighter-sounding bass strings. He politely refused this suggestion. He really longed for the days that were in the rearview mirror, gone forever. 
In a final act of humiliation and omission, James Jamerson had to scalp tickets to Motown 25. I'm sure there are excuses for why he wasn't personally invited to the, rape, the taping of this legendary show. Maybe, you know, they might say we didn't know how to get in touch with him. We didn't think he wanted to come, blah, blah, blah. I don't think any of the Funk brothers were there. And if any of them were there, there was no acknowledgement and no recognition of any kind for any of them. But anyway, James, as the story goes, was seated in the balcony and he watched the show. Some of you are probably aware of the portion of the show called What is the Motown Sound? This would have been the perfect time to acknowledge the Funk Brothers and their invaluable contributions to the label's sound, but that opportunity was lost. James left that theater as anonymous as he had entered it. This may have been the final nail in his coffin. About four months later, James Jamerson went the way of many a Motown great into an early grave. On August 2, 1983, the great bass innovator left behind a 47-year-old body ravaged by the evidence of his heartbreak, cirrhosis of the liver, heart failure, pneumonia. He is buried in Detroit's Woodlawn Cemetery. Shortly before his death, his bass was stolen and never recovered. Not the first time that a base belonging to him was stolen, but I guess it's important to mention that. The great majority of James Jamerson's work was uncredited in his lifetime. As I mentioned before, his first credit was on Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. This was in 1971, about 12 years into his Motown tenure, and after he'd contributed to numerous hit records. He is credited as the incomparable James Jamerson. In 1989, six years after Jamerson's transition, Allen, Dr. Lick Slutsky, wrote the book Standing in the Shadows of Motown, which features James Jamerson's biography, two CDs, and testimonials from some 26 bassists, speaking on Jamerson's greatness and how he influenced their playing. This led to the 2002 Funk Brothers documentary film of the same name. As far as his posthumous recognition, James Jamerson was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2000, among the first ever sidemen to be so recognized. He received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 2004. He was inducted into the Musicians Hall of Fame in 2007. Both of these honors came to him as a member of the Funk Brothers. He was inducted into the Fender Hall of Fame by his friend, fellow Motown Sessions, Sessions bassist, Bob Babbitt in 2009, and it was eloquently accepted by both his wife and his daughter. In 2011, he received Bass Player Magazine's Lifetime Achievement Award, and he ranked number one on their list of the 100 greatest bass players. The magazine said of him, James Jamerson wrote the Bible on baseline construction, development, feel, syncopation, tone, touch, and phrasing, while raising the artistry of improvised bass, playing in popular music to zenith levels. The Samson Hardkey and Zoom International Bassist Award in 2012, Hollywood Guitar Center's Rock Walk awarded him his very own bust. The Funk Brothers were awarded their very own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He's also the favorite bassist of Paul McCartney and Brian Wilson. Yippee. The state of South Carolina, too, has bombarded James Jamerson, a native son with posthumous honors such as the 2008 Gula Geechee Anointed Spirit Award, the 2018 Dr. Martin Luther King Dream Keepers, and numerous other honors. I will close this out with a quote from Rolling Stone magazine. James Jamerson helped to revolutionize the field. 
jolting his parts with extra syncopation, additional chords that added melodic depth and complexity, and tonal choices that evoked gospel harmony. So that's my version of the James Jamerson story. I think it's a sad thing that you know we can't give people their flowers while they're here. Um, I'm not going to say that he doesn't know about it, you know, because I believe that where he is, he does know about these posthumous honors. But it's just great to see a person receive these type of honors in their lifetime. And it's just good to just treat people right and to give them their due, you know. That's all. Just give people their due. What is that going to take away from any of us to just, you know, give people what they deserve? It wouldn't have taken anything from the so-called Motown family to give James Jameson and his fellow funk brothers the recognition they deserved while a great majority of them were still alive. But anyway, that's life, that's show business, and we can't do anything about it at this point, but do better towards the people, hopefully. I'm Monica, and this has been Remembering the Misremembered, and I will see you soon. Hello, hello, hello. This is Monica. And uh, this is Remembering the Misremembered. And um, I have an interesting person to talk about today. Um, He has been referred to as the heartbeat of the Motown sound. And Marvin Gaye, Mr. Gaye himself called him the secret weapon of Motown. He's also been called the man with the magic fingers. One admirer declared that he was the electric bass player and that he didn't receive his just due in his lifetime. James Jamerson, a.k.a. Igor, was the central component of the greatest hit machine in the history of popular music. Over about a 14-year period, he and his fellow Detroit musicians known as the Funk Brothers played on more hits than the Beach Boys, the Rolling Stones, Elvis, and the Beatles combined, even as people try to claim that Paul McCartney is the bassist who played on the most hits. I don't see how that's possible, but anyway, Paul McCartney is a bass player who has spoken of Jamerson as an influence. So have Peter Cetera, Stanley Clark, Bootsy Collins, Robert Cool Bell, Bob Babbitt, who is a fellow funk brother, Sting, Marcus Miller, John Paul Jones, and many, many others. Now, for most of his life, James Jamerson was under the impression that he had been born on January 29, 1938. In the late 1970s, a few years before his death, James saw his birth certificate and realized that he was born two years earlier on January 29, 1936. His place of birth was Odesto Island, South Carolina, and his parents were James and Elizabeth and he had a brother named Richard. His father worked in the shipyards and his mother was a domestic. James was just a small boy when his parents split up and it seems that his aunt and grandmother took charge of him and his musical education began. James would go to the home of a cousin every day and by the age of 10 he was playing piano in church and at other gatherings. He also learned to play trombone. But um, before he turned 10, James Jamerson was involved in a serious bicycle accident where both of his feet were crushed and it was at first feared that James might lose those feet. But fortunately, he was able to have successful reconstructive surgery. He spent a year in a wheelchair, 
Left with a small limp that never left and finding it necessary to wear special shoes, James would be good-naturedly teased by his fellow Motown musicians. James took the ribbon in stride, but the permanent damage to his feet made him self-conscious. It was another thing that made him stand out. And he struggled to string his words together, sometimes using the incorrect form or tense. Example, he told his future wife, Annie, I want to marry you. Now, he could have been trying to be funny. Sometimes, I know sometimes I will say things incorrectly on purpose, you know, just trying to be funny or whatever. But some people are claiming that this was like a, an impediment or something, but I don't know. Anyway, James stood out in another way uh, as far as his physical appearance. His toast-colored complexion and light, almost blue eyes also made him feel different from his darker friends, relatives, and associates. Of course, in later years when he moved to Detroit, he would find his tribe and be surrounded by people of many different skin tones. But it's perhaps because of all of this that James was considered to be a loner. James's mother, Elizabeth, had moved to Detroit to find work, and she eventually sent for the teenage James in 1954. James had flirted with the bass as a young kid. He told a story about taking a stick and stretching a long rubber band across it and playing it for an audience of ants. He and his friends used to play inside the vacant home of some vacationing neighbors where there was a piano and an upright bass. It was in high school that James Jamerson got serious about playing the bass. According to the book Standing in the Shadows of Motown, James's high school friend, a drummer named Clifford Mack, said that he and James were walking to the music room one day. When they got there, they saw a bunch of instruments lined up. They tried to figure out what they wanted to play. James saw an upright bass. He went to it and started to play around with it and predicted, I'll be playing this in six months. The music teacher at Northeastern High School, where James was a student, was named Dr. Helstein, and he had encouraged James to take up the upright bass because he had large hands. James never seemed to struggle with the instrument once he decided to play it. James was offered a scholarship to Wayne State University but turned it down, opting instead to dive directly into the Detroit club scene as a jazz and blues musician. It was in 1959 that James Jamerson started playing for the brand new Hitsville, USA. Between 1963 and 1968 alone, James and the Funk Brothers played on 60 top 15 singles, 56 number one R&B hits, and 23 number one hits on the pop charts for Motown Records. He didn't just play. He completely revolutionized the way that bass is played. Bass playing once consisted of root notes, fifths, and simple repetitive patterns. Jamerson, however, used chromatic runs, syncopation, ghost notes and inversions, and the use of open strings. Mostly he played using one finger known as the hook, like he would with the upright bass. His melodic lines locked to the drum groove. It's important to note that at the time that Jamerson went from upright to electric bass, the electric bass was relatively new. The style of it had not yet been established, so his style greatly influenced popular music. James said that the songwriters and producers would hand him the chord sheet, and he would take it and do what he felt with it. He built his bass lines around the melody line from the lyrics. He said, too, that his playing was inspired by the spiritual feeling of the East. Standing in the shadows of love to his ears had an Arabic feel. He studied African, Cuban, and Indian scales and brought this knowledge with him to Motown. Among other things, Jamerson was noted for his timing, which was often two beats ahead of the refrain. 
He was literally ahead of everyone and everything else. Jack Ashford said, you couldn't even touch his timing because he could hear another time in his head and be playing cut time against what you play and it would fit. Funk King Rick James said that James was so fluent on bass that he knew notes in between notes. James and the Funk Brothers made decent money working at Motown. James was esteemed slightly higher than the others because he was considered more of a master of his instrument than the other musicians were of theirs, even though they too were the best in town. Barry Gordy was paying James $2.50 a week during Motown's glory years. The Funk Brothers also played at various jazz clubs in Detroit when they weren't working in the studio. Sometimes it was a struggle to get paid. The Funk Brothers, according to keyboardist Joe Hunter, even had to pull guns on a club owner to ensure that they got paid, with James putting his gun on the table and declaring, I got a family. James had been married to his wife, the former Annie Wells, since high school, and they went on to have four kids together, James, Joe, Derek, and Doreen, known as Penny. James Jr., or is it the third, became a professional bassist as well. James and his family moved into a three-bedroom home on the west side of Detroit, which was a great area back then. Some of James Jamison's most iconic bass lines are as follows, and he had many, many other great moments, but these are some of the most emblematic. Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, where the rhythmic variations between sections is emphasized. Ain't nothing like the real thing, it's just as special, though. Bernadette by the Four Tops is considered by many music historians and many bass historians as Jamerson's finest performance, or at least his most in-your-ear performance, as opposed to in-your-face. It's very easy to find this particular bass line in isolation on YouTube, MusicRadar.com, and possibly some other places. What's going on by Marvin Gaye? Jamerson's bass in the introduction really sets the tone for this classic piece of social commentary set to music. This album marks the first time that James Jamerson's work is actually credited in the album's liner notes. It's been said that Marvin Gaye was adamant that James Jamerson, and not a substitute, play on the album's title track. He had been playing in a bar and was still there, drunk, when they located him to record his part. If this story is to be believed, we are listening to Jamerson playing, laying flat on his back and deep in his cups. For Once in My Life by Stevie Wonder. Jamerson pulls out his open strings bag, and Stevie pulls out his harmonica. When everybody started calling Stevie a genius, Jamerson lovingly told Stevie, you ain't shit. Standing in the Shadows of Love by the Four Tops, where Jamerson incorporates the rake technique, a movement of the right hand where he rakes his fingers across the strings, backward or forward as needed. I love the interplay between the bass, the percussion, and Levi Stubbs' lead vocal. In isolation, it sounds like hot lava pouring from a volcano. The same old song, also by the Four Tops. A great bass line for those just learning to play the Jamerson way. My Girl by the Temptations. Jamerson beautif beautifully opens this song with the sound of a beating heart. It's iconic in every way. A beautiful collaboration where the songwriters, singers, and musicians were all at the very top of their game. One of the most famous bass lines. The most famous everything of all time. Recognized all over the world among people of all races and age groups. And of course, there are many, many more, but those are some of my favorites. In 1973, James Jamerson made the move to Los Angeles. He joined up with Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church and was on the church's musical staff. The glory days of Detroit were over and James struggled to adjust to LA's music scene. He did not have that tight circle of support that he'd enjoyed in Detroit, 
nor did he adjust well to the new trends in music. He was stubborn, proud, and just a little bit spoiled. He resisted change. As the years went on, his dependency on alcohol became more intense. With increased dependency on a substance comes an increase in unreliability, and it impacts a person's ability to function. People started to forget a little bit, as people do, but it wasn't over for James. And he continued to contribute to hit recordings such as The Silver's Boogie Fever, Higher and Higher by Jackie Wilson, and You Don't Have to Be a Star to Be in My Show by Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. James had grown accustomed to being a sought-after musician in his day, but he had to humble himself and get his daughter to help him put together a resume detailing who he had worked with and what hit songs he contributed to. Bitterly, he just said, I've done a whole lot of shit. The gigs didn't necessarily go well because James could be critical of other musicians, particularly bass players. A producer tried getting him to update his playing style by using brighter sounding bass strings. He politely refused this suggestion. He really longed for the days that were in the rearview mirror, gone forever. In a final act of humiliation and omission, James Jamerson had to scalp tickets to Motown 25. I'm sure there are excuses for why he wasn't personally invited to the the taping of this legendary show. Maybe, you know, they might say we didn't know how to get in touch with him. We didn't think he'd want to come, blah, blah, blah. I don't think any of the Funk Brothers were there. And if any of them were there, there was no acknowledgement and no recognition of any kind for any of them. But anyway, James, as the story goes, was seated in the balcony and he watched the show. Some of you are probably aware of the portion of the show called What is the Motown Sound? This would have been the perfect time to acknowledge the Funk Brothers and their invaluable contributions to the label's sound, but that opportunity was lost. James left that theater as anonymous as he had entered it. This may have been the final nail in his coffin. About four months later, James Jamerson went the way of many a Motown great into an early grave. On August 2nd, 1983, the great bass innovator left behind a 47-year-old body ravaged by the evidence of his heartbreak, cirrhosis of the liver, heart failure, pneumonia. He is buried in Detroit's Woodlawn Cemetery. Shortly before his death, his bass was stolen and never recovered. Not the first time that a bass belonging to him was stolen, but I guess it's important to mention that. The great majority of James Jamerson's work was uncredited in his lifetime. As I mentioned before, his first credit was on Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. This was in 1971, about 12 years into his Motown tenure, and after he'd contributed to numerous hit records. He is credited as the incomparable James Jamerson. In 1989, six years after Jamerson's transition, Allen, Dr. Lick Slutsky, wrote the book Standing in the Shadows of Motown which features James Jamerson's biography, two CDs, and testimonials from some 26 bassists, speaking on Jamerson's greatness and how he influenced their playing. This led to the 2002 Funk Brothers documentary film of the same name. As far as his posthumous recognition, James Jamerson was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2000, among the first ever sidemen to be so recognized. He received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 2004, He was inducted into the Musicians Hall of Fame in 2007. Both of these honors came to him as a member of the Funk Brothers. He was inducted into the Fender Hall of Fame by his friend, fellow Motown Sessions Sessions bassist, Bob Babbitt in 2009, and it was eloquently accepted by both his wife and his daughter. 
In 2011, he received the Bass Player Magazine's Lifetime Achievement Award, and he ranked number one on their list of the 100 greatest bass players. The magazine said of him, James Jamerson wrote the Bible on baseline construction, development, feel, syncopation, tone, touch, and phrasing, while raising the artistry of improvised bass, playing in popular music to zenith levels. The Samson Hartkey and Zoom International Bassist Award in 2012, Hollywood Guitar Center's Rock Walk awarded him his very own bust. The Funk Brothers were awarded their very own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He's also the favorite bassist of Paul McCartney and Brian Wilson. Yippee. The state of South Carolina, too, has bombarded James Jamerson, a native son with posthumous honors such as the 2008 Gula Geechee Anointed Spirit Award, the 2018 Dr. Martin Luther King Dream Keepers, and numerous other honors. I will close this out with a quote from Rolling Stone magazine. James Jamerson helped to revolutionize the field. Jolting his parts with extra syncopation, additional chords that added melodic depth and complexity, and tonal choices that evoked gospel harmony. So that's my version of the James Jamerson story. I think it's a sad thing that you know we can't give people their flowers while they're here. Um, I'm not gonna say that he doesn't know about it, you know, because I believe that where he is, he does know about these posthumous honors. But it's just great to see a person receive these type of honors in their lifetime. And it's just good to just treat people right and to give them their due, you know? That's all. Just give people their due. What is that going to take away from any of us to just, you know, give people what they deserve? It wouldn't have taken anything from the so-called Motown family to give James Jameson and his fellow funk brothers the recognition they deserved while a great majority of them were still alive. But anyway... That's life, that's show business, and we can't do anything about it at this point, but do better towards people, hopefully. I'm Monica, and this has been Remembering the Misremembered, and I will see you soon. Hello, hello, hello. This is Monica. And uh, this is Remembering the Misremembered. And um, I have an interesting person to talk about today. Um, He has been referred to as the heartbeat of the Motown sound. And Marvin Gaye, Mr. Gaye himself called him the secret weapon of Motown. He's also been called the man with the magic fingers. One admirer declared that he was the electric bass player and that he didn't receive his just during his lifetime. James Jamerson, a.k.a. Igor, was the central component of the greatest hit machine in the history of popular music. Over about a 14-year period, he and his fellow Detroit musicians known as the Funk Brothers played on more hits than the Beach Boys, the Rolling Stones, Elvis, and the Beatles combined. Even as people try to claim that Paul McCartney is the bassist who played on the most hits. I don't see how that's possible, but anyway. Paul McCartney is a bass player who has spoken of Jamerson as an influence. So have Peter Cetera, Stanley Clark, Bootsy Collins, Robert Cool Bell, 
Bob Babbitt, who is a fellow Funk brother, Sting, Marcus Miller, John Paul Jones, and many, many others. Now, for most of his life, James Jamerson was under the impression that he had been born on January 29, 1938. In the late 1970s, a few years before his death, James saw his birth certificate and realized that he was born two years earlier on January 29, 1936. His place of birth was Odesto Island, South Carolina, and his parents were James and Elizabeth, and he had a brother named Richard. His father worked in the shipyards, and his mother was a domestic. James was just a small boy when his parents split up, and it seems that his aunt and grandmother took charge of him, and his musical education began. James would go to the home of a cousin every day, and by the age of 10, he was playing piano in church and at other gatherings. He also learned to play trombone. But um, before he turned 10, James Jameson was involved in a serious bicycle accident where both of his feet were crushed and it was at first feared that James might lose those feet. But fortunately, he was able to have successful reconstructive surgery. He spent a year in a wheelchair, left with a small limp that never left and finding it necessary to wear special shoes James would be good-naturedly teased by his fellow Motown musicians. James took the ribbon in stride, but the permanent damage to his feet made him self-conscious. It was another thing that made him stand out. And he struggled to string his words together, sometimes using the incorrect form or tense. Example, he told his future wife, Annie, I want to marry you. Now, he could have been trying to be funny. Sometimes, I know sometimes I will say things incorrectly on purpose, you know, just trying to be funny or whatever, but... Some people are claiming that this was like an impediment or something, but I don't know. Anyway, James stood out in another way uh, as far as his physical appearance. His toast-colored complexion and light, almost blue eyes also made him feel different from his darker friends, relatives, and associates. Of course, in later years when he moved to Detroit, he would find his tribe and be surrounded by people of many different skin tones. But it's perhaps because of all of this that James was considered to be a loner. James's mother, Elizabeth, had moved to Detroit to find work, and she eventually sent for the teenage James in 1954. James had flirted with the bass as a young kid. He told a story about taking a stick and stretching a long rubber band across it and playing it for an audience of ants. He and his friends used to play inside the vacant home of some vacationing neighbors where there was a piano and an upright bass. It was in high school that James Jamerson got serious about playing the bass. According to the book Standing in the Shadows of Motown, James's high school friend, a drummer named Clifford Mack, said that he and James were walking to the music room one day. When they got there, they saw a bunch of instruments lined up. They tried to figure out what they wanted to play. James saw an upright bass. He went to it and started to play around with it and predicted, I'll be playing this in six months. The music teacher at Northeastern High School where James was a student was named Dr. Helstein, and he had encouraged James to take up the upright bass because he had large hands. James never seemed to struggle with the instrument once he decided to play it. James was offered a scholarship to Wayne State University but turned it down, opting instead to dive directly into the Detroit club scene as a jazz and blues musician. It was in 1959 that James Jamerson started playing for the brand new Hitsville, USA. Between 1963 and 1968 alone, 
James and the Funk Brothers played on 60 top 15 singles, 56 number one R&B hits, and 23 number one hits on the pop charts for Motown Records. He didn't just play. He completely revolutionized the way that bass is played. Bass playing once consisted of root notes, fifths, and simple repetitive patterns. Jamerson, however, used chromatic runs, syncopation, ghost notes and inversions, and the use of open strings. Mostly he played using one finger known as the hook, like he would with the upright bass. His melodic lines locked to the drum groove. It's important to note that at the time that Jamerson went from upright to electric bass, the electric bass was relatively new. The style of it had not yet been established, so his style greatly influenced popular music. James said that the songwriters and producers would hand him the chord sheet, and he would take it and do what he felt with it. He built his bass lines around the melody line from the lyrics. He said, too, that his playing was inspired by the spiritual feeling of the East. Standing in the shadows of love to his ears had an Arabic feel. He studied African, Cuban, and Indian scales and brought this knowledge with him to Motown. Among other things, Jamerson was noted for his timing, which was often two beats ahead of the refrain. He was literally ahead of everyone and everything else. Jack Ashford said, you couldn't even touch his timing because he could hear another time in his head and be playing cut time against what you play and it would fit. Funk King Rick James said that James was so fluent on bass that he knew notes in between notes. James and the Funk Brothers made decent money working at Motown. James was esteemed slightly higher than the others because he was considered more of a master of his instrument than the other musicians were of theirs, even though they too were the best in town. Barry Gordy was paying James $2.50 a week during Motown's glory years. The Funk Brothers also played at various jazz clubs in Detroit when they weren't working in the studio. Sometimes it was a struggle to get paid. The Funk Brothers, according to keyboardist Joe Hunter, even had to pull guns on a club owner to ensure that they got paid, with James putting his gun on the table and declaring, I got a family. James had been married to his wife, the former Annie Wells, since high school, and they went on to have four kids together. James, Joe, Derek, and Doreen, known as Penny. James Jr., or is it the third, became a professional bassist as well. James and his family moved into a three-bedroom home on the west side of Detroit, which was a great area back then. Some of James Jamerson's most iconic bass lines are as follows, and he had many, many other great moments, but these are some of the most emblematic. Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, where the rhythmic variations between sections is emphasized. Ain't nothing like the real thing, it's just as special, though. Bernadette by the Four Tops is considered by many music historians and many bass historians as Jamerson's finest performance, or at least his most in-your-ear performance, as opposed to in-your-face. It's very easy to find this particular bass line in isolation on YouTube, MusicRadar.com, and possibly some other places. What's going on by Marvin Gaye? Jamerson's bass in the introduction really sets the tone for this classic piece of social commentary set to music. This album marks the first time that James Jamerson's work is actually credited in the album's liner notes. It's been said that Marvin Gaye was adamant that James Jamerson, and not a substitute, play on the album's title track. He had been playing in a bar and was still there, drunk, when they located him to record his part. If this story is to be believed, we are listening to Jamerson playing laying flat on his back and deep in his cups. For Once in My Life by Stevie Wonder. 
Jameson pulls out his open strings bag and Stevie pulls out his harmonica. When everybody started calling Stevie a genius, Jameson lovingly told Stevie, you ain't shit. Standing in the Shadows of Love by the Four Tops, where Jameson incorporates the rake technique, a movement of the right hand where he rakes his fingers across the strings, backward or forward as needed. I love the interplay between the bass, the percussion, and Levi Stubbs' lead vocal. In isolation, it sounds like hot lava pouring from a volcano. The same old song, also by the Four Tops, a great bass line for those just learning to play the Jameson way. My Girl by The Temptations. Jameson beautif beautifully opens this song with the sound of a beating heart. It's iconic in every way, a beautiful collaboration where the songwriters, singers, and musicians were all at the very top of their game. One of the most famous bass lines, the most famous everything of all time, recognized all over the world among people of all races and age groups. And of course, there are many, many more, but those are some of my favorites. In 1973, James Jamerson made the move to Los Angeles. He joined up with Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church and was on the church's musical staff. The glory days of Detroit were over and James struggled to adjust to LA's music scene. He did not have that tight circle of support that he'd enjoyed in Detroit, nor did he adjust well to the new trends in music. He was stubborn, proud, and just a little bit spoiled. He resisted change. As the years went on, his dependency on alcohol became more intense. With increased dependency on a substance comes an increase in unreliability and it impacts a person's ability to function. People started to forget a little bit as people do, but it wasn't over for James. And he continued to contribute to hit recordings such as The Silver's Boogie Fever, Higher and Higher by Jackie Wilson, and You Don't Have to Be a Star to Be in My Show by Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. James had grown accustomed to being a sought-after musician in his day, but he had to humble himself and get his daughter to help him put together a resume detailing who he had worked with and what hit songs he contributed to. Bitterly, he just said, I've done a whole lot of shit. The gigs didn't necessarily go well because James could be critical of other musicians, particularly bass players. A producer tried getting him to update his playing style by using brighter sounding bass strings. He politely refused this suggestion. He really longed for the days that were in the rearview mirror, gone forever. In a final act of humiliation and omission, James Jamerson had to scalp tickets to Motown 25. I'm sure there are excuses for why he wasn't personally invited to the, rape, the taping of this legendary show. Maybe, you know, they might say we didn't know how to get in touch with him. We didn't think he want to come, blah, blah, blah. I don't think any of the Funk Brothers were there. And if any of them were there, there was no acknowledgement and no recognition of any kind for any of them. But anyway, James, as the story goes, was seated in the balcony and he watched the show. Some of you are probably aware of the portion of the show called What is the Motown Sound? This would have been the perfect time to acknowledge the Funk Brothers and their invaluable contributions to the label sound, but that opportunity was lost. James left that theater as anonymous as he had entered it. This may have been the final nail in his coffin. About four months later, James Jamerson went the way of many a Motown great into an early grave. On August 2, 1983, the great bass innovator left behind a 47-year-old body ravaged by the evidence of his heartbreak, cirrhosis of the liver, heart failure, pneumonia. He is buried in Detroit's Woodlawn Cemetery. Shortly before his death, his bass was stolen and never recovered. 
Not the first time that a base belonging to him was stolen, but I guess it's important to mention that. The great majority of James Jamerson's work was uncredited in his lifetime. As I mentioned before, his first credit was on Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. This was in 1971, about 12 years into his Motown tenure, and after he'd contributed to numerous hit records. He is credited as the incomparable James Jamerson. In 1989, six years after Jamerson's transition, Allen, Dr. Lick Slutsky, wrote the book Standing in the Shadows of Motown, which features James Jamerson's biography, two CDs, and testimonials from some 26 bassists, speaking on Jamerson's greatness and how he influenced their playing. This led to the 2002 Funk Brothers documentary film of the same name. As far as his posthumous recognition, James Jamerson was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2000, among the first ever sidemen to be so recognized. He received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 2004. He was inducted into the Musicians Hall of Fame in 2007. Both of these honors came to him as a member of the Funk Brothers. He was inducted into the Fender Hall of Fame by his friend, fellow Motown Sessions, Sessions bassist, Bob Babbitt in 2009, and it was eloquently accepted by both his wife and his daughter. In 2011, he received the Bass Player Magazine's Lifetime Achievement Award, and he ranked number one on their list of the 100 greatest bass players. The magazine said of him, James Jamerson wrote the Bible on baseline construction, development, feel, syncopation, tone, touch, and phrasing, while raising the artistry of improvised bass, playing in popular music to zenith levels. The Samson Hartke and Zoom International Bassist Award in 2012, Hollywood Guitar Center's Rock Walk awarded him his very own bust. The Funk Brothers were awarded their very own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He's also the favorite bassist of Paul McCartney and Brian Wilson. Yippee. The state of South Carolina, too, has bombarded James Jamerson, a native son with posthumous honors such as the 2008 Gula Geechee Anointed Spirit Award, the 2018 Dr. Martin Luther King Dream Keepers, and numerous other honors. I will close this out with a quote from Rolling Stone magazine. James Jamerson helped to revolutionize the field. Jolting his parts with extra syncopation, additional chords that added melodic depth and complexity, and tonal choices that evoked gospel harmony. So, that's my version of the James Jamerson story. I think it's a sad thing that, you know, we can't give people their flowers while they're here. Um, I'm not going to say that he doesn't know about it, you know, because I believe that where he is, he does know about these posthumous honors. But it's just great to see a person receive these type of honors in their lifetime. And it's just good to just treat people right and to give them their due, you know. That's all. Just give people their due. What is that going to take away from any of us to just, you know, give people what they deserve? It wouldn't have taken anything from the so-called Motown family to give James Jameson and his fellow Funk brothers the recognition they deserved while a great majority of them were still alive. But anyway, that's life, that's show business, and we can't do anything about it at this point, but do better towards people, hopefully. I'm Monica, and this has been Remembering the Misremembered, and I will see you soon.